I want you to go to Psalm 34, and then we're going to take the end of our time and, and spend a few minutes in Hebrews 2. Um, what, I, what I want you to recognize here is that uh, we're going to deal with today uh, kind of the problem of the pains in our lives and, ha- and how the Lord sees them, understands, and hears them. Um, and my question is, does God get it when we're in trouble? When we're afflicted, does he get it? Does Jesus get it? What I want to submit to you today is that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible reveals a God that's loving and concerned. And I just ask you the question, do you know him? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.13 refers to himself and the other apostles other, and, and other disciples in very unflattering terms. He calls themselves the scum of the earth in 1 Corinthians 4.13. Uh, the idea behind that is not that he's being you know, self-degradating. He's just saying um, these are people that are followers of Jesus that, that have stuck to their faith when it, whether it was popular or not. They proclaimed Christ unswervingly even when it led to abandonment or poverty or homelessness or even death. This world doesn't claim them. It doesn't appreciate their integrity and commitment to purity and truth, but God claims them. He recognizes them as his children, and he is the father of the afflicted. Did you catch that? God is the father of the afflicted, and his son, Jesus, is the older brother of the afflicted. We've got to kind of live with that truth. Now, I want to do just a little bit of um, a, a background here, and, and then we'll get started. Psalm 34 is one of many uh, written by David. It, it's identified, if, if you uh, are there already, you'll ide- it'll identify itself as a Psalm of David. Now, many of the Psalms are not of David. Most of them are, but a lot of them are not. But this one is identified. We know it's a Psalm of David because it says that. And I want you to look at the, at the superscript over uh, the little type over where, between where it says Psalm 34 and where the, where the Verse 1 actually begins, and look what it says about when it was that David wrote this psalm. You catch that? It was written, okay, uh, in an interesting time. Now, it's also written in an interesting manner. We will call Psalm 34 um, an alphabetic acrostic poem, okay? It was one of at least two that we know of that David wrote with the idea of taking the Hebrew alphabet, which had 22 letters, notice how many verses in Psalm 34. 22, am I right? Did I catch that right? Okay. 22 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and so he would begin each verse as if you and I would begin with A and end with Z. Okay, we've got what, 28 letters in our alphabet? They only had 22. But he would begin with each verse with a different, sorry, 26. Thank you, Sally. I knew somebody was going to bail me out of that one. I, you know, I'm pulling that from thin air. My Sally, my mom would not be happy with me forgetting that it was 26 and not 28. 22 in the Hebrew alphabet. I do know that. And uh, so each verse begins that way. Now, if you did you read that little superscription over... Um, over, over the, the passage. Now, by the way, if you ever kind of have a little extra time in your devotion time and, and you've, you've come to the reading where you're in Psalm 119, 
It is also an acrostic poem, but in that one, he does eight verses per letter. So it ends up with 176 or so uh, verses. That's what makes it so long. It's also an acrostic poem, but this is a shorter one, only 22 verses. And uh, he writes it then with uh, a, some problems in mind uh, at, in his life. Did you catch it when you read the uh, kind of introduction there? What's going on? He pretend, my Bible says he feigned madness. Now the context of that is he's running from Saul for a long time. This David is the king designate, but Saul is the king. He hates David, trying to murder him every time he turns around. And he wasn't accepted by anybody else as well. So in an attempt to kind of hide, he goes over in kind of the territory where Goliath is from, interestingly. And he, um, um, he first tries to join up with the army, and uh, they don't want him. Uh, and uh, so then he just decides he's going to go into town and, and act like he's crazy. And uh, in that process... Um, by the way, the reason he wasn't accepted in the army is because he had killed tens of thousands of Philistines, and so the Philistines aren't going to accept him in their army, at least not at this point. So to avoid suspicion, David acts as he's, like he's insane. And the king uh, looks at his servants around him and says, uh, you know, don't I have enough crazy people around me? What are you guys thinking? And, and he, David was allowed to leave. He, he escapes with his life here. Now, so what we're dealing with here is a guy that's, that is desperate. Have you ever been so desperate that you pretended to be crazy to get out of trouble? I don't have to pretend, okay? Okay, fast forward then. In a few minutes, we're going to go over to Hebrews 2. And in, in, this, in these two verses are all that we're going to look there from Hebrews 2. They come from a different setting altogether. In this setting, the book, of, uh, the book is written to Christians from a Jewish background who are suffering their own kind of rejection, their own kind of pain, their, their own kind of affliction. They have been ostracized from their friends for choosing to follow Jesus as a Messiah in a, in a, in a Jewish culture within Rome. And the temptation for them was to go back to being Jewish only and save their hide. So you've got pressure in both of these passages, and we're, we're going to kind of deal with it. Now, what I want you to do is turn with me to Psalm 34. I'm going to ask Steve Blair, if you wouldn't mind, man, to read the first three verses, and then turn to your mother and say, Happy Mother's Day. He gets to be here with his mother. Miss Blair, Happy Mother's Day. Good to see you. Okay. <laughs> and she's reminded every day of you, every Sunday of you. Read the first three verses, if you will. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Okay, so this is a, there's some, a, a, a literary device here. 
called parallelism being used, where he states one thing and then he just says the same thing another way. Catch that? He says, um, I'll bless the Lord at all times, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, he says really the same thing in two different ways, right? So the idea here is that David has chosen to adopt a posture of praise. And I got to deal with how often he says that he's going to do that. What does he say? All the time. Continually. Uh, the the scriptures I'm reading from, that translation says continually. Now, what you need to remember is that little superscription before the text of, of, uh, of Psalm 34 begins, is it going really well for David? Is why he's praising God. No, it's never gone worse. Can you imagine coming back from this time? Uh, okay, I, I, I saved my skin, but how far have I had to go? in this chapter in my life. And yet, he says, your praise will continually be on my lips, even when it's bad in my world. I can learn from that. Now, in verse 2, uh, he, um, when this affliction has abated, so for now, he is, he is hiding, but he is no longer in fear today he's going to be murdered by somebody. He's found a place to hide. And uh, so when this kind of, that, at least for the time being, the affliction abates, he chooses to give the Lord glory and to tell others. Now, it's interesting to me. He eventually escapes from this thing. Uh, completely from this chapter in his life. And he's going to speak in terms not only of, wow, I, I, I got free from King Achish over there in the, in, the, in the Philistines, with the Philistines, but this is still going on. And I think it's a statement of faith, Psalm 34 too, that, that he's saying one of these days, this is all going to be gone. And it was for him. He makes a statement of faith here. He eventually completely escapes this kind of a chapter in his life. But notice when he invokes this thing in Psalm 2, he's not saying, ain't I good? I got out of this. I faked it and made it. Wow, how smart am I? No. What does he say in verse 2? He says, I'm going to give the God, God the glory. I'm going to bring praise to him. He rescued me. And he tells others about it. I had a brief conversation on either Thursday or Friday with a, with a young member of our team, our staff at the school. This, this young lady is a really good a recruiter for us, and she's getting, ready to, she's getting ready to do another school thing, and she's going to eventually be gone from our team. And I'm, I'm sad about that. We'll talk about that a little bit. And uh, she looked at me, and this, this lady has a way of kind of piercing your soul when she looks at you, and she said, okay, so how are you doing today? And I got a little choked up because I said, I'm going through a season in my life when um, uh, Rhonda has read over the last year a book that talks about that some people over in, uh, in Great Britain think they're thin places on the earth where heaven's just a little closer. 
and this is in Ireland, I, I believe, that we were reading about. Not so sure I believe that, but I'm telling you, I'm living in a thin place. I see him everywhere. And I said to this girl, I said, you know, I remember a preacher telling me years and years ago, and it stuck with me, and I'll say it to you. If I could take what's in my heart and give it to you, you would never give it back. It's time to tell. It's time to tell. Blair Harris made a crack a little bit ago about the, this place in his, on his arm, which looks really good to me. But he said, uh, he's been telling his, his grandkids, you know, if you need me to go with you to show and tell, uh, he can show a part of his thigh on his left arm, or his right arm. <laughs> we need to tell. We need some show and tell, don't we? David just says, God has been good to me, and I don't want to tell other people about it. He's rescued me. Now, this all requires, if you look at verse 3, this all requires for him and for you and me a change of perspective. And right here, he's going to turn to the men that are with him. We think there were about 400 fighting men with him. And he's going to invite them to change their perspective as well. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. It's previously been kind of a, uh, a personal thing. And he uses another one of these parallel statements where he says two things back-to-back uh, -back that really mean the, the same thing. He invites others to join in his praise. He recognizes that he serves an eternal, powerful creator. He's in charge. I am not. And he recognizes that. Okay, let's, let's go on in the story. Uh, we're going to need to read a little longer portion. John, can I get you to read 4 down through 10? Beautiful analogy there that we'll kind of kind of mine in just a minute. But can I get somebody to go to 1 Samuel 22? I want us to read two verses there in just a minute. 1 Samuel 22, because it's the same period of time. He'll get it. Thank you, Sally. Chapter 22, verse 1 and 2. Okay, so David has lots of reasons to fear. That's what goes in your blank. What are his reasons to fear? What are his fears? The king of the land is trying to kill him. If the Philistines could find him, they'd kill him too because he's put to death a lot of them in war. He's on the run, often hungry. We'll read about that when Sally gets to 1 Samuel 22. He's, he's on the run. The guys that are hanging out with him are all people that nobody else wants anything to do with. They become part of David's merry men, you know. Uh, and they're incredible guys, but nobody else wants them because they're just all messes. 
Sally, read 1 Samuel 22, the first couple of verses. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or disconnected gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. He's got about 400 guys, but did you hear Sally's, what she read, a description of them? They were disenfranchised. Nobody else wondered. Okay? Now, if, you, if, you, if I had had her read part of chapter 21, you would read that the section about when he faked being insane. Okay, so we're, we're syncing up on time here when he writes uh, uh, Psalm 34. Another piece that happens in there that's very interesting, they're, they're so hungry that they happen on a bunch of priests uh, who have uh, the daily showbread, but it's at the end of the day. So they got to bake some more tomorrow, and David actually begs these guys for some bread from... Uh, uh, from the tabernacle, uh, so that they can have something to eat. And they give that to them. By the way, Saul the king hears about that. Hears about He thinks they're being disloyal to him, and he hasn't murdered all those priests. Going through some tough, tough times here. He's got a lot of reason to fear. My question is, what are your reasons to fear? Don't say them out loud. What are your reasons to fear? Think about this wonderful faith statement here that's made. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. I'm going to make another statement about fear in just a little bit. This is a great faith statement. Now, in verse 5, he talks for a minute about shame. I imagine he's experienced some of that in his life already. We have, he's going to say, We've got more reason for hope than for shame. In Psalm 40, verse 14, which I put there for you to cross-reference if you want to, uh, it's a part where David is saying, okay, put my enemies to shame. We won't live in shame. We'll live in hope. Even in this difficult, difficult time. And in verse 6, he calls himself poor. Now, uh, I, I put the reference to 1 Samuel 16, which is where, where uh, uh, David is chosen as king. And what you recognize is that he is the youngest of all his brothers. He's kind of ignored. In fact, his, his dad, Jesse, almost forgets he's in the, in the fields tending sheep when Samuel comes to, to anoint the new king. Uh, are you out of sons? And, and Jesse finally says, oh, yeah, I got another one. He's tending sheep. Bring it. And he becomes the king. But what you and I need to know is Jesse, David's dad, is poor. David grew up poor. He had a, had a tough background. So in the verse, in verse 6, when it's read and he's talking in third person about the poor man, who's he talking about? Himself. Himself. Now, look back at verse 2. If, if, you're, if your particular version of the Bible is like mine, it may use the word humble, but if you're reading NIV, it will use the word afflicted. See that in verse 2? Okay. That is the same word okay, in the plural that is used in the singular 
in the verse before us as poor. Poor and afflicted. He's calling kind of the same thing. Um, it's just kind of the poor here uh, in verse 6 is the singular version of afflicted uh, in verse 2. So you kind of, kind of get the picture. Now look at verse 7 and tell me what you see. You know, it's a good uh, spiritual experience, everyone, a, a, a discipline. To just read the passage and say, I want to see that for a minute. I want to think about it for a minute and see if I can see it. What do you see? In your day of trouble, what, do you, what should you see here in verse 7? Rescue, but it's depicted how, Katie? Surrounded by an army of angels that nobody else can see, and frankly, that you and I can't see. But the comforting truth is they're there. I can't see them. People around me can't see them, although there are a couple of stories from the Old Testament where the enemy saw the, the angel army and, and the folks that were going into battle didn't, and it scared the enemy away. There's some of that going on in your life and mine. We never know what's around us. But my guess is, for your loved ones going through something difficult, one of the things I need to pray for them is that they recognize the angel army around them. Recognize who's there. The power that they have there. Now, and so, the king invites us to dine at the Lord's table. Um, this is a great memory verse, I think. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That word blessed is the same one that talks about the blessed man in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who, from Psalm 1, 1. It's, it's this same idea. Remember that this is the same man who later in his life writes uh, of um, in Psalm 23, writes of the table set before me. He's inviting you and me to praise God at his table, at the Lord's table. And in verse 9, I'm going to read it out loud again. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. What I want you to catch here is if you and I believe him and believe in him, then we naturally ought to, and this is hard, but it, what ought to naturally follow is trust. Do you trust him? Do you trust God to take care of you in those tough days? So here's the adage I want you to think about that I read this week that I just have hung on to. Fear what the Lord says to fear. What does he say to fear? Himself. To honor, respect him, to love him. To fear him in that way. To honor him. To not, to not uh, refer to him uh, uh, inappropriately. To fear what he says fear. And then to not fear what he says not to. And that's a huge list. There's, there's one on the list of what to fear, himself. In godly honor and respect. Everything else, I've got this. Don't fear this. I'll take you through this. Remember the angel army around you. 
fear what he says to fear and don't fear what he says not to. That's pretty good advice. And to illustrate this in verse 10, he brings up the story of a lion, the, the illustration of a lion. Um, uh, and, and the idea here is what does a lion lack? And uh, uh, lions sometimes get kind of hungry, but most of the time they're not lacking much. They're kind of the top of the food chain. They stand, one statement I read this week said, um, lions stand at the top of the land animal food chain. They're quite skilled at acquiring food, and David has had personal experience in protecting sheep from them. If you read his story in 1 Samuel, we'll read uh, their occasion when he has is, is killed a lion. They're extremely, lions are extremely self-sufficient. But they, even so, they can grow weak and hungry despite their self-sufficiency. And so he invokes this and says, if a lion lacks occasionally, you and I don't. And I reference the first verse of, of the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23, where he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In one translation it says, I lack nothing. Even if the lion lacks, you and I don't. It's kind of the idea. Now, let's go from there, with that as a background, to Hebrews 2. I want to quickly deal with two verses. We're going to go to verse 17. You remember now, this is spoken to those who are under in, intense pressure and trouble. And they're being threatened to abandon their faith and turn back. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, if you're dealing like I sometimes do, and maybe even as David did in his day, with, um, with, okay, how can, I understand that God loves me, he cares for me, he's providing for me, but how can he know what I need? This passage in Hebrews answers that. How does he know what I need? Because he experienced it through his son. He experienced it in every way, the Bible says, in, uh, in 4.15. It says he experienced what we've experienced in every way, and yet without sin. If Proverbs 34 tells me that God provides, then Hebrews 2 tells me, how does he know what I need? Because he's been through it. I referenced here the 50th Psalm, and I hope you'll take a minute to look at that at some point. He talks What it talks about in a, in a series of kind of rhetorical questions is what you and I've got to recognize is that God needs nothing. He doesn't need anything. That's a truth you and I need to hang on to. So if he needs nothing, how can he understand what I need? He can because of the life and the ministry and the testimony of his son Jesus, who is described here as the one who went through it all. God provides, and he knows what I need. Aren't those just two dynamite things linked together? He can, he will, he provides, and he knows. He understands. 
The last verse we'll deal with today is verse 18 that I just read. What, one of the things I've got to get you to catch here is that Jesus' trials were more severe than mine. Think about that for a bit, but I'd still submit it. Jesus' trials were more severe than mine. Yet he endured to the very end. Uh, in Matthew 4, it talks about this great temptation experience that he had for 40 days and 40 nights without food. I've never done that. If you have, uh, sometime I want to you tell me how it went. Uh, if you're still alive, by the way, yeah. Uh, he went through that, but that wasn't the most severe test. Then he went through the garden. When he said to, to the Lord, his father, not my will, but yours be done. That's what I quoted here from, from uh, Matthew 26. Not just in the wilderness with Satan, but in the garden, once again with Satan, and pleading with the father in Matthew 26, 39, he surrendered. It reminded me of a, of a statement that C.S. Lewis made in his classic book, Mere Christianity. Does Jesus really understand what, I, what I'm dealing with? According to Hebrews 4.15, he does. But listen to this. I if I can get back to it here. A silly idea is current that good people don't know what temptation means. The temptation to quit, for instance. This is an obvious lie, he says. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a very sheltered life by always giving in. Here's what the Bible teaches me. Here's what Hebrews teaches me. Here's what the Gospels teach me. Jesus never gave in. Whatever struggle you're facing, he saw it to the very end, was victorious over it. So you can go to him and say, how did you get through this? And he's the one who can give you advice on how to do that. Can you trust him? Do you trust him? And whatever it is that you're going through right now, I think he can. The Old Testament tells me God is powerful. He provides. The New Testament passage today tells us he understands. 